Welcome, Redemption Arcadia. Let's go ahead and stand together for worship. We're so happy that we're able to gather this morning. Thank you so much for wearing your masks and for distancing while you're here. We really appreciate it. Um, if you're joining us on YouTube, we're so happy that you're joining us as well. Let's go ahead and um, worship together this morning. super easily. It's really simple to learn, but um, if there's one prayer I have for us this morning as we worship together with this song, um, it's that these words and um, these truths would be true of us as God's people. And if they aren't, um, I pray that um, we would be able to confess that and submit that to the Lord today, that he would 
move and work in our hearts um, to make this our prayer, to make this our heart's desire, to make this our response to the heaviness and the darkness that I know we all feel in the world right now. Um, so the chorus, I'm going to sing a little bit of the chorus so you know kind of how it goes. Um, so this is a chorus. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Every fear I lay at your feet. I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you.
thank you that um, those words are true, that you have already fought the battle and won our victory through your son on the cross. So I pray that we would just rest in that, um, that in this world, in the time that we're in, that we truly would place our trust and our faith in you, um, that you fight every battle, that we can come before you and submit everything to you, God. We love you. Um, thank you that we get to gather today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from John 3, verses 9 to 21. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? Okay. You're more awake than the nine o'clockers, that's for sure. Uh, if you're new, we're glad that you're here. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Um, and, and if you don't know, Redemption Church is one church with nine congregations in Arizona. And we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Um, we have a few uh, announcements uh, that we need to get through, and then we'll get into this passage that Stephanie just read for us. Um, the first one's a little bit kind of personal. If you're wondering where um, Tyler Thompson is today, we were led today by Malia and, and uh, Caleb, which, by the way, they did a great job. Appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tyler uh, got the opportunity uh, to go to his uh, former church in California, where he came from. They are celebrating their 97th anniversary today, and they wanted Tyler to come and preach in light of that. So quite an honor for him to be able to go there, and so we pray for him as, as he is there. And speaking of anniversaries, coming up in January is Redemption Church's 10th anniversary. So, so a little bit of a dichotomy there. We're just entering adolescence and well, anyway, we're just entering adolescence. I won't talk about what happens at 97 anyway. So, um, we're also, I want to mention, oh, uh, the Kansas uh, program that we're into. And uh, th this is a very helpful reminder for us. Um, these 10 commitments that we have on here. Uh, I think if, if, you're, if you're somebody who has embraced Jesus as your Savior and you're reading Scripture... You look at these 10 commitments and you kind of shake your head. You go, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's good. That's right. Uh, we know these already. The problem is, is that we need to be reminded of them often. And, and that's why we made these cards is because we do need to be reminded daily, especially now as we've entered the last three or four weeks of this election cycle, which kind of feels like it's a little bit more contentious than it's been in the past. So um, this is very helpful for those of us who are followers of Christ to be reminded of how we might be a light in a really dark time, in a dark season uh, right now. And then uh, speaking of that, you know, Wednesday nights, um, we are, uh, again, uh, we're trying to uh, do some stuff on Wednesday nights. We have been doing some stuff. We've been 
uh, really excited about what we've done and, and we're uh, happy with what we've set up for October. Um, we're going to ease back on the throttle on the Wednesday night thing the closer we get to the holidays because we know how busy it gets, but we're going through October at least with Wednesday nights. Last Wednesday night, we had that three-person uh, discussion panel on the church and the election in 2020, and it was interesting. Uh, first of all, we got very good feedback on that, um, uh, had some good questions as well, uh, really good interaction. A lot of people came. That didn't surprise us, but it was fun to have you know, a, a full uh, room. Uh, we had some trouble with YouTube, though. We were trying to get the live stream started on YouTube, and we're very sorry about that. But YouTube kept kicking us off, and Caleb figured out later on that it was because when we would put it on there, um, we had the word election in the title. And so they were kicking, apparently they were a little allergic to the word election, so they were kicking us off. As a result, we've also been kicked off this morning, apparently. So we're not sure what's going on with YouTube right now. Um, I guess we're fighting with YouTube. I didn't know that, but we are. We're fighting with YouTube. So we hope that maybe the live stream is going for the second service, but we weren't able to do it for the first service. So we're even talking about opening a whole new YouTube channel until they get mad at us for that channel. Anyway, so we're sorry about that, but we did, um, we were able to record most of Wednesday night. So 60 of the 75 minutes is on our YouTube channel right now, so you can go and watch it, and some people have done that. And we appreciate those of you that waited for 15 minutes, kept trying to tune in, and then finally you were able to on Wednesday night. Appreciate you doing that as well. That was a good night. This coming Wednesday night, I'm doing that talk on disillusion of meaning which I think is very timely. I think it's been timely for 10 years, actually, but now it's actually something that's in the water of our culture, and people are really talking about it. And so I'm going to bring a lot of my background in communication theory to bear on that conversation Wednesday night, but there's also a biblical grid that we're going to be looking at that through as well, uh, sort of uh, in the beginning and then at the end, with a lot of really helpful, albeit academic, but very helpful stuff in the middle so that'll be this Wednesday night at 6.30 in this room. Again, we're going to be trying to live stream at YouTube, but you can also come in person for that. And then uh, the 21st and 28th, I'm going to do marriage. I do marriage uh, stuff a lot. I know Those of you who have been around here a while know that every, every two years or so we'll do a marriage class. Uh, never had to do one on marriage in the pandemic, though. So I've specifically taken our marriage material and have tailored it to the fact that the pandemic has brought about new and interesting challenges for marriage. And so we're going to be specifically talking about um, marriage during the pandemic, and I think that will be helpful as well. So that's our Wednesday nights coming up. Let me pray, and we'll get into this passage in John chapter 3. Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth, and... and uh, we need to remember that we have your word, we have your truth, we have the words of Jesus right here at our fingertips, but we also need to remember that the Holy Spirit is present with us now to lead, guide, and direct that word to our hearts and our minds. And so I pray about that right now. I pray that we would welcome your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would carry these words, that your Spirit would filter the words that I say so that uh, the people here could, could only hear what you need them to be able to hear so that we can know who Jesus is, we can draw closer to who Jesus is, and we can believe in the Son of God. So help us to be able to do that today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in the Gospel of John for a while, and we'll be continuing for a while in the Gospel, taking some breaks for Advent and, and other certain times. But uh, essentially, we're looking at trying to get through the rest of the Gospel of John through the year 2021, and then we'll start uh, something new. Uh, we're, spending the, the, uh, we're spending three weeks in uh, chapter 3, which is one of the most well-known chapters, one of the most important, if you want to use that qualifier, chapters in um, uh, the New Testament, John chapter 3, and we're right in the middle today. We're looking at verses 9 through 21, 13 verses, and in doing so, we're finishing the great conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus uh, today that we started last week with verses 1 through uh, 8. And this passage today includes the most famous New Testament verse ever, which is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. 
But in the midst of that, I want you to consider this as well. We've talked about this virtually every week. The whole purpose, the whole point of John's gospel is that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The word believe is crucial to this gospel. And we've discussed that. And what's interesting about these 13 verses is that seven times in these 13 verses, the word translated believe is used. So we're really pushing into that, especially here. So it's time to believe. Also, a couple weeks ago when I was at the preaching collective for this passage, we came across something called the standard false substitutes for John 3.16. I thought I'd share them with you. These are the false substitutes for John 3.16. God helps those who help themselves. That's popular opinion 3.16. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. That's wishful thinking, 316. And be a good person and God will accept you. That's religious advice, 316. Don't fall for these, these substitutes. And, you know, in, might of, in, in light of those, this might be really helpful. Those of you that have been around here know that every week we say that Redemption Church is gospel-centered and outward focus, and that we believe that all of life is all for uh, Jesus. But something else that you should know about Redemption Church... Um, and to borrow a phrase from the culture, for some of you, Redemption Church may not necessarily be what you would call a safe space. And the reason for that is that when you come every week at some point, somewhere in the sermon, and certainly in John chapter 3, it's virtually the entire sermon, you're going to be told that the Bible says that you and I are sinners, and because of our sin we've been separated from God, and there's nothing that we can do to fix that breach between us and God, but that we need Jesus to come in and intervene in our lives and be our Savior. That's the only solution for it. So we're going to tell you that, yes, you do fall short, that, yes, you are not basically a good person, and that, yes, you need outside intervention. You can't fix this. And that's a little unsafe for some people, but it's also the truth, and it's where you can actually find life. Jesus calls it the abundant life in John chapter 10. We're going to get there in another three or four years to John chapter 10. But what, what we're finding out every single week is that God created in Genesis 1 and 2 this perfect, holy, beautiful universe without sin. It's been referred to as paradise, and he places these two people in paradise, sinless paradise. But then in, John cha in, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, these two people rebel against God and break that perfection and sin against God. And that sin corrupts everything. It corrupted creation. It corrupted their relationship with God, their relationship with others, their relationship with themselves. And it corrupted their relationship with the creation. And the earth is created as well, or corrupted as well. The creation is corrupt. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says that even the rocks cry out for redemption because it's corrupt. And, and, and that sin, that corruption is then passed on down to us. And when we are born into this world, we aren't born with a clean slate. We aren't uh, people who become sinners because we've sinned. We are born into sin and corruption, and therefore we are sinners. And so what Paul says in the book of Romans is that we are in Adam. That's our fate. That's our condemnation. That's who we are prior to knowing Jesus. We are in Adam because he was the one who rebelled against God. But then Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am going to the cross to be the atonement for your sins, to be the forgiveness, the payment uh, for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God and forgiven of your sins and then three days later I'm going to come busting out of that tomb and that's going to be the resurrected life that you will also have by believing in me and now you can be in Christ you will be in Jesus and those are the only two options that we have we're either in Adam or we're in Christ and that's our mission as the church is to help you see that being in Christ is where you want to be and so these three sections that we look at today within the second section of John chapter 3, we're gonna, we have 13 verses. Here's how we're going to split it up. We're going to start with verses 9 through 15. And in these first seven verses, it's interesting because what happens with, with Nicodemus is Jesus is chastising Nicodemus a bit. This was probably a bit uncomfortable for Nicodemus. This was not a safe space 
uh, for Nicodemus, if you want to say it that, that way. So in verse 9, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these, these things be? That's referring back to everything that Jesus said to him in verses 1 through 8. And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now here's how Jesus might have said that today. He might have said it this way. Nicodemus, you are educated beyond your intelligence. You have all of this knowledge. You're so smart. You're so trained. You have all of these advanced degrees. And yet you have lost your ability to discern truth. You have no wisdom. You have knowledge, but you have no wisdom. You have no ability to be challenged with what truth really is. By the way, in the midst of this conversation with Nicodemus, because it seems like Nicodemus isn't getting it and he keeps pushing back on Jesus, those of you who get frustrated that you can't seem to argue or debate your friends and family into the faith, take some solace here in this conversation here. Even Jesus struggled to argue people into the faith. And no one could out-debate or out-argue Jesus. He's got every answer for Nicodemus, Yet Nicodemus cannot and will not get it until when? Until the Holy Spirit works in his life and begins to open up his eyes and opens up his heart and opens up his mind to the truth of who Jesus is. And we know that that eventually happens because we know eventually Nicodemus becomes a believer. But he wasn't argued into the kingdom of God here, even by the king of that kingdom. And let me just stop here also and share with you what one, I think, extremely bright commentator wrote about this, this verse. It's, I think it's really good. He reminds us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We talked all about that last week. So Nicodemus, because he was a Pharisee, he was all about external appearances of religion and piety. In other words, as this commentator said, Nicodemus was what we might call a first century virtue signaler. He was very concerned with how other people saw him, very concerned with what other people thought of him, even though Jesus would say to him, you're a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. The problem, though, with all of this first century virtue signaling is that all of his emphasis on the religious and the pious external appearances had deadened Nicodemus's ability to see, perceive, understand, and discern spiritual truth even when it was right in front of him. Nicodemus, like so many others, was so focused on his image that he lost the ability to discern what Francis Schaeffer would call true truth. Here's the lesson for us, and we're all susceptible to this. Don't let your obsession with your personal image management, your profile posturing, and your virtue signaling deaden your ability to see the love, truth, and grace of who Jesus is. So important. And then verse 11, <clears throat> Jesus just keeps on speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You do not receive our testimony. You do not believe our testimony. Now, you just read that in the English, and it sounds like Jesus is saying that to Nicodemus. You don't believe. But in the Greek, the you is plural. It's plural. So now Jesus, there's a very subtle shift here. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking to him as a representative of God's own people, the Jewish people. And he's saying, all, if you're from Texas, all y'all don't believe. All of y'all are rejecting this truth. You need to know this, Nicodemus, because you're representing everybody who is refusing this truth. They didn't believe it. Remember in chapter 1, when John told us that Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not believe, the Jews rejected the truth of the gospel of Jesus? Jesus is simply reiterating the spiritual blindness of God's supposed people, Israel. The truth is in the midst of God's people. He is incarnate. He is with them, God with them, Emmanuel. But they're so lost that they can't even see it. And Nicodemus, the teacher, is but a representative of this sad, larger reality of, of what's happening to God's people. Verse 12 if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly 
things. In this encounter, Jesus has already tried to use earthly common illustrations and examples to teach the teacher, Nicodemus, about the things of God. And the earthly things that he's talking about refer back to a couple of things in verses 5 through 8, the wind and, and the water. But Nicodemus wasn't getting it. Jesus is trying to use illustrations where he'd get it, but Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's the teacher of Israel, and so Jesus is confounded by Nicodemus' denseness. He's saying, you don't understand simple truths, and you're supposedly a great teacher of the Jewish people? No wonder God's people are so lost. If their teacher, Nicodemus, cannot understand simple earthly things, how can he possibly understand the deeper things of God? How can he be a teacher of deep spiritual truths? And so Jesus schools him a bit. And we know in, in the rest of the Gospels and in uh, John's Gospel that Jesus often taught in uh, little stories that we call parables. A parable is specifically a story of worldly, earthly things that teach us about spiritual gospel truths. But you have to get the earthly, worldly reference if you're going to understand the spiritual truth. Nicodemus was getting none of the references. And it's frustrating Jesus a bit here. And so verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So what is Jesus saying here? Why did he throw this into his little speech? It's actually pretty simple. No one ever, other than Jesus, has the authority and the credibility to speak about heavenly spiritual things in the way and in the depth that Jesus does. Not essential things, not important things, not life-giving things, not God things, not true things of wisdom. No one, no philosopher, no rabbi, no pastor, no talk show host, no movie or television personality, no professional athlete or politician has the ability to speak about these things the way Jesus does. Why? Because he's the only one whose permanent abode is in heaven. He's the only one that has the perspective, the understanding, the wisdom, the relationship that he has. And therefore, only he has true knowledge regarding spiritual wisdom. So listen to Jesus, he's saying. And then verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is this Moses story all about? What's the Moses and the serpent reference? This, what Jesus says here, is actually a somewhat shadowy prediction of Jesus' eventual crucifixion. And in the process of this prediction, he's making a historical, metaphorical reference to a well-known event in Israel's history that Nicodemus would have understood. Nicodemus is an expert in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And so he would have heard this, this one Nicodemus got. He knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And here it is. At one point, after the Exodus, in the wilderness, the Israelites found themselves among many snakes. There were lots of snakes out there. And these snakes were deadly and they like to bite people. Uh, I do a lot of hiking around here. It's kind of like being in the Phoenix or Scottsdale Mountain Preserves during October or April when the, the rattlesnakes seem to enjoy being out. So God told Moses that if you take one of these serpents, hopefully dead, and lift it up on a pole and hold it up, whenever somebody gets bit by one of these serpents before they die, if they look up at the serpent, they will be saved. They'll be delivered. They'll be healed. They will live. So you can see, you can see the reference there. I, I want to read it to you. I mean, how often do we get to read stuff out of the book of Numbers, right? <laughs> There's a Bible book called Numbers? Yes, there is. So here you go. Here's the story. By the way, I think it's important to read the story so you know why the snakes were there too, okay? Because I could have just kind of skated on by that, all right? Starting in verse 4, chapter 21, from Mount Or. They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. This is a common theme with the Exodus. I just thought I'd mention that, that the people became impatient. I mean, how many times do we have to see that they became impatient? Maybe that's why God let them wander for 40 years. Don't pray for patience. It might take you 40 years to figure it out. I guess that's maybe a lesson for us there. 
Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out up, uh, brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Well, so there is food, it's just that you think it's worthless. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the uh, people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, That when he is lifted up on the cross, if people would look at him and believe, they will live. They will be spiritually healed. They will be delivered. They will be saved. It's a history lesson that points to this spiritual truth again. Jesus keeps plugging away. He keeps trying to get Nicodemus to see the reference. And, And what we need to understand from this is that you and I are born into this world already spiritually snake bit. And the only antidote is Jesus on the cross. Now before we go to the second little section, which is three verses, I just want to mention, it's just a thought. I think it's interesting how things eventually turn out with Nicodemus. He eventually believed, and he even went so far as to put himself out there at great personal risk. Yet when we read these verses here in the Gospel of John, it looks like there's no chance that Nicodemus is ever going to believe, that he's ever going to get it. Sometimes, this has been my experience. I have no scientific evidence to back this up. This has been my experience, I admit. And I will also tell you that it was my personal experience as well. So maybe I'm slanted towards this. But my experience has been that people who are uh, the strongest resistors of a gospel message are often the ones, for whatever reason, that the Holy Spirit will work in them and eventually lead them down that path to salvation. So when you go to somebody and you, and you tell them about Jesus, if they react offended and angry and, and call you names and really push back, I found that those are the people that for whatever reason, they seem to come around eventually. It's not the person who, who says, yes, oh yes, I love Jesus. He was such a wonderful teacher and I read the Gospels and, and, and it, it's so beautiful, the story that it tells, and, and that's so good for you. I'm just not quite there yet. Those are the ones that I, I, don't, I don't see them making the move. When I was 27, and Jackie was telling me about Jesus, and we weren't even dating yet. When Jackie was telling me about Jesus, I was offended. And I reacted strongly. And I challenged her with what I thought, of course, were great challenges. I pushed back against the veracity of the Bible. I, I talked about the problem with churches. All they want is your money. It's just a scam. I said that Jesus isn't even a real historical figure. And, and here's the biggest place where I pushed back. I said, I'm offended that you would tell me that I need a savior. You're telling me I'm a bad person. I'm a good person. Deep down in my heart, I know I'm a good person. I know that when I stand, if there is a God, I know that when I stand before God, he's going to look at me and he's going to go, Frank Switzer, the bad stuff you did way down here and the good stuff is way up here. I told her that. I was offended. And God just kept working on me and working on me. And I think that that reaction was, was part of the fact that I actually knew that I needed intervention from Jesus. And God used that in me. That was me. I was a good person. She had her nerve telling me about Jesus. But it's exactly what I needed. So, part two, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's interesting. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son 
of God. God so loved the world, so loved it, that he gave, he sacrificed his one and only son. That word so, in front of so loved, that word so is there for one reason. It is to emphasize the intensity of the great love that God has for sinful people, and that would be us. That's good news. Um, that leads me to say there are three incredible truths that this one statement says about God's love for us in, embedded in that verse. We see the universal character of God's love in that verse. We see the sacrificial nature of God's love in that verse. And we see the eternal purpose of God's love in that verse. The universal character, the sacrificial nature, and the eternal purpose. I thought I understood this whole sacrifice thing, the sacrificial nature of God's love. And then Shelby was born, our firstborn. And, and something happened that very second that Shelby was born. Something happened to me. I, I felt something so deep and so profound that I never could have described or imagined before. And a couple of days later, I started to reflect on that, and I, and I suddenly began to, I think, understand at a deeper level exactly what it is that God the Father has done for us in sacrificing his one and only son. And, and I just, I'll just be candid with you. I would never sacrifice Shelby to save you. I wouldn't. I, I love you. I don't love you that much. I just don't. Our second daughter, Darby, same thing. I would never sacrifice Darby for you. Here you go. Not even our son-in-law, Joey, would I sacrifice for you guys. This is the depth of God's love for us, that he took the most valuable thing to him, and he gave Jesus for us. And that sacrificial nature of God's love demonstrates the universal character of his love and the eternal purposes of his love. He did this so that we'd have an eternity with him, which, by the way, starts now. And what is it that, that God loved? It was the world. That word here, world, is used in the usual way that John uses it to describe any person or place in need of restoration, redemption, salvation, deliverance. And, and he says, you need to believe. And if you believe, you shall not perish, but you'll have eternal life. That word believe, we talked about this before. The word believe in the Greek is also translated as faith or trust. It can be any of those things. So do you believe in Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? All of those work. But that verb there, shall have eternal life. The verb have is in the continuous present form. It means that we have that life now. It's not just something that's in the future, and we have it forever. Consider what that means. We often think of eternal life in terms of quantity, and that's true. It goes on forever. It's infinite. But we are told explicitly here that eternal life is also about quality because it starts now. And it's about as living right now, as Jesus says in chapter 10, the abundant life. That would be a life of joy, a life that's absent of fear, a life of hope and promise. A life of love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Here you go. It's a life with a loose grip. Um, I've just found that the harder I grip the things of this world, and by the way, that's not to say that the things of this world are necessarily bad, but the harder I grip the things of this world, the less freedom I feel like I have. When I'm, when I'm willing to let things go, I experience what Scripture says is freedom, I think. Because I'm letting them go because of my faith in Christ. I'm trusting in Christ. I believe in Christ. That's genuine freedom. And that word perish in verse 16, it means eternal separation from God. You need to get this. Hell is more of a state than a place. Hell is more of an existence than an address. And that state, that existence, is eternity without God anywhere ever. And that could only be bad. That could only be a destination that is bound by weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and eternal or everlasting life, that, that phrase, eternal life, is used ten times in this gospel. So if you think that's not important, it really is. 
And the, and the challenge is that we all exist eternally, actually. Don't, don't fall for the idea that if you're not in Christ, your, your existence ends with physical death. You still go on living spiritually. The question is, where are you going to live? Are you going to live with Christ in the new kingdom? Or are you going to live absent of Christ? That's what we're talking about here. That's what John is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. Verse 17, that the world might be saved through Jesus. In other words, Jesus' death and resurrection makes salvation possible. But we still have to respond. I mean, this isn't a done deal until we bring our sin in repentance and faith to Jesus. And verse 18 says that the world is condemned already. This again, we talk about this all the time, but it's a very difficult point for a lot of people to get. What Scripture teaches about us, and we could say it this way, theologically, this is a theological truth, we are born into sin. We are born into corruption, which means we are born into condemnation. We are born already condemned by our sin. We talked about it in regard to verse 7 last week. So there would be no reason, no point, no purpose for Jesus to come into the world to condemn it. It's already condemned. That's not his mission. Rather, he came to save. He came to deliver us from that condemnation. He came to give us exactly what we need, the only way out. And it's a reminder, without Jesus, there is no positive outcome. And without Jesus, there's also no neutral outcome. A lot of people like to use neutrality as sort of a, a way to get out of engaging with the gospel. And I hear this sometimes. It's, it's the person who says, you know, I don't have a problem with God, and I don't think he has a problem with me. He's doing his thing, and I'm doing my thing. Okay, that's very enlightened, but not really, because... God's thing happens to be holiness. And without his son, you and I are in an unholy state, no matter how hard we might try to stay neutral. And then part three, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These verses refer us back to, again, John chapter 1, verse 5. I'll read 4 and 5 for context. In him, in Jesus, in the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is heading us back into this uh, contrast between the light and the dark because he wants to talk about the problem of the judgment that comes. The judgment is that people love darkness. Even if, if, even if that darkness is just the darkness of our own supposedly beautiful, good, and pure hearts because it means the true nature of our deeds can be hidden by that darkness and can be papered over by our philosophy of, of goodness. But with the light, with the light of God, the light of Jesus, the light of the gospel, the light of revelation, the evil and wickedness can no longer hide. It is brought out into the open and revealed. Now, why would God do that? Is it to shame and embarrass us? No. He does that so that we can see who Jesus really is and, and that he has atoned for our sins and that he wants us to be reconciled to God and he wants us to have an abundant life. And again, that was me. I was pushing back against Jackie because I didn't want my evil, my wickedness, my sin exposed. I had every excuse in the book for my sin, every one that you can think of. I didn't want it exposed. But as Jackie continued to talk to me and the Holy Spirit continued to work in my life, that light began to shine very clearly on my sin. And I began to say, I have a problem and I can't fix it. And there was Jesus right there. Through a church whose mission, North Phoenix Baptist Church, whose mission is to proclaim the gospel and tell people about Jesus. And God used that church. God used the Holy Spirit. God used his word. And God used Jackie to reveal that to me, to bring me out into the light so that I could 
Walk away from that darkness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Every one of us, from the moment we're conscious of our sin, of our misfires, of our selfishness, we struggle with trying to justify it. We struggle with trying to redeem it. We try to make excuses for it. We try to tuck it away out of sight. We try, here's, here's our favorite one, and this is right out of Genesis chapter 3. We try blaming someone else or something else for it. We even try blaming God for it. We try to make up for it with some sort of good works or virtue signaling, or we recast it as goodness. That's another thing we do. We just recast it as goodness, or we simply try to deny it. But we know it's real. We know it's a problem, and the answer is Jesus, and he's the only answer. So John and Jesus call us to believe, believe. In January 2009, uh, I'm not much on college football. There's this guy named Tim Tebow. He was a quarterback for some college football team. I guess they were playing for the national championship. Is that about right? Those of you that like college. See, I'm in Arcadia. Nobody cares about football. I love it here. So anyway, um, for that championship game, apparently, you know how football players put that stuff on their eye? I don't know, to reflect. Ah, anyway, anyway um, he did that, but inside he put John 3.16. He's a believer. So he put John 3.16. So what I've read from a number of different sources, within the next 24 hours of them first showing him on the sideline without his helmet on in that John 3.16, starting from that moment on, within the next 24 hours, there were 90 million Google searches for what does John 3.16 say. 90 million. That's awesome. Here's, here's what we need to understand. Those 90 million people may have known what John 3.16 said after that. The question is, how many of them believed? Because that's what really counts. We can have all the knowledge in the world like Nicodemus had, but we can miss who Jesus really is, and what Jesus calls us to ultimately is belief. Do you believe? Let's pray together. Lord God, we're grateful again for your word and its truth, and we're thankful for this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus because it's instructive for us. And so, God, we just love you and we praise you for this word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who's with us now. I pray that we would just open our arms to the Spirit, that we would allow ourselves to be guided and directed by your Spirit who's going to point us to Jesus and going to point us to your word. So help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing one more song together. And as we do that, we're going to come to the table. You have your individual communion packets there with you. Those of you who are watching, I hope, on the YouTube um, uh, live stream, if you have your elements ready, this is your time uh, as well. And we're just reminded that these elements are significant. The, the, the wafer, the bread... That is Jesus' body, which is broken for us. And the, the cup, the wine, or the juice is, is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. It's the, the blood of the new covenant. And by taking this meal, we are, we are proclaiming, I'm a sinner. We're proclaiming, but I've been united with Christ, and so I have life. So it's a celebration. And we're proclaiming to a world, we believe in Jesus. That's what it means. And Paul says, he says, every time we do this, and this is why we do it every time we gather, every time we do this, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. So let's do that right now.
All right, thank you so much for being here and worshiping with us today. I'm going to do something that's not scripted and might be a little bit awkward for everybody, but the worship was so good today that I had to say something about it. And so I'm just sitting there thinking, what, what could I say? Well, here's something. I think I'm right about this. Five up here, there is a Grand Canyon University connection. Am I right? So are you still a student at Grand Canyon? Yeah, so uh, yeah, still a student actually interning with us. JT, and then Caleb and, and, no, that's Malia, not Caleb. Caleb, Caleb and Malia are graduates of GCU. And, and the other one, Jacob, he, cut, he, he, he cuts my hair. So G, four weddings and a funeral, four GCU and a haircut. So I don't know, something like that. So really, we, we appreciate you guys. Thanks for uh, leading us today. Uh, I have no idea what's going on with my mic right now. Um, oh, that's what it is. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I'm so used to these things now. That I don't even, yeah, went to bed the other night with it on. That was stupid. All right. Anyway, yes, that's much better. Thanks, Caleb. All right. So in the spirit of reading from Numbers today, that blessing that I love so much is actually also from Numbers. So here you go. Let this be a blessing and a prayer over us as we go. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.